Hebrews chapter 5. If you like books, you know the pleasure of meeting the author of the book, which I understand not everybody likes books, so you don't... You might not care about that, but if you do like books, you know what it is to meet the person who wrote the book that captivated your mind, uh, that, that kept you going in that story, that novel, or that, that uh, unpacked a, a, uh, a, a principle of life. Um, uh, I enjoy reading um, <clears throat> uh, books by uh, a guy by the name of Malcolm Gladwell who uh, is just kind of notices things in the world and and um, uh, he kind of writes to business people but not necessarily just business people and he just has a knack for for recognizing things and and one day I saw a picture that one of my friends had had posted um, uh, when they were in New York City of this picture of this guy that they met and I recognized him and that was Malcolm uh, Gladwell and um, uh, I've had the opportunity a few times to uh, have books signed by the authors. And it's an interesting thing when they write a little personal note to you in the flyleaf of your, of your book there and sign their name. You feel some kind of connection to the author. But all of that pales in comparison to meeting the author of this book, a Bible in front of us, and the author of our eternal salvation that Hebrews 5.9 tells us about. And then this morning, we have the opportunity to come into an encounter with the author of what is the greatest news the world has ever heard. Verse 9 of Hebrews 5 says, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. He wrote the script, and he played its part. So this morning, I want to have us dive into Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I want us to see what a high priest was, and then who Jesus was. What the high priest was, and then who Jesus was. In the back of your bulletin, there's a space for, for filling some of the notes here. But I want us to see in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, what the priest was, and then verses 5 through 10, who Jesus was. And see, you see some similarities, and then profound differences. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Explains a little bit more about a high priest. And then verse 4 he says, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. First thing I want you to see about who a priest was, was that he was very simply chosen. He was chosen. Not everybody could fill out an application or a resume on, on a website and say, Okay, I want to be the next high priest of Israel. He was chosen. He was divinely authorized in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, he had to be of the tribe of Levi. Uh, Aaron of the tribe of Levi became the first high priest in Exodus 28. And all others that would pass 
that would that would be high priest after Aaron. Um, they needed to be Levites and direct descendants of Aaron, unless God made direct exceptions, like Samuel, who was not. Because they had a responsibility. And there are examples of people in the Bible who tried to take the place of the high priest, who, who went beyond their role, people like Korah, People like Saul, people like Uzziah the king, uh, tried to offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation, and God struck them down. And God removed his blessing from them. So the high priest was somebody who was chosen. There is a divine call. Not just anybody, but God chose these people to be the ones who would serve as the high priest. But look in verse 2. Not only was he chosen, but he had to be man. He had to be a man. Verse 2 says, Who can have compassion on the ignorant, and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, in order for a high priest to be a representative, it couldn't have been an angel acting on behalf of man. Specifically regarding the relationship of God and man, it had to be another man who would be the go-between, who would represent God to the people and represent the people to God. He was a man, he offered sacrifices and, and offerings, the verse says in verse 1, that he may both offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. It to be a human man, chosen man. But the third thing you'll notice is what he says in verse 3. The end of verse 2 says, For that he himself also also is compassed with infirmity or weakness, speaking of his humanity, and by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also, also for himself, to offer for sins. I don't know if you caught that there, but he says, So also for himself to offer for sin. So the third thing about, about the high priest was that he was also a co-sinner. He was not a perfect person. He was a sinner, just like the rest of the people of Israel. The Bible says, for all have sinned. He was able then, because he was a sinner, to deal wisely and gently with sinners. To deal with sins of ignorance and sins of presumption. He knew by personal experience the problems of people, because he too was a human. He too was a sinner. He knew the well-traveled paths of sin. And temptation. He had weakness all around him with people and in himself as well because he was fallen just like them. He needed provision for his own sins. In other words, the priest needed a priest. The biggest problem was not with the system of, of Israel, the Levitical system, Moses' law, but his own sin. And that could affect his work and his sensitivity for, uh, to, to his job. And God had provided a day of atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, where the sins of the nation of Israel were dealt with, where they would take a goat, and they would kill that goat as a sin offering, and the priest would represent the people, and he would sprinkle blood in the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in a place called the Holy of Holies. But before he did that, Leviticus 16, verse 6, tells us that the high priest himself needed to first enter with the blood of a bull as a sin offering for himself and his household. 
After that was done, and he offered the sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the nation of Israel, then they would take a goat, what we call a scapegoat, and he would he would symbolically transfer the sins of himself and his nation under the head by by putting his hands on the head of that goat and release that goat into the wilderness. <clears throat> Remind him of the removal of sin. But all of that, all of that was done to remind himself of his own sin as well as the nation's sin. Well, certainly, if there was nothing better, then this is the ideal situation. This is the, this is the ideal representative, a high priest. But here's the point of the passage. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is a better high priest, and it's not just that he's a better high priest, it's that the previous high priests were poor and standing for the real thing. They were all sinners. But Jesus is the real deal. His work is not a picture of the Old Testament priesthood. His priesthood and his work as priest was what the Old Testament priesthood was symbolizing and pointing to. He's the general article. The other was the shadow. He was the true figure. But why is he better than what we just talked about in verses 1 through 4? Why is he the real deal? Well, there's three reasons the writer gives to us, and some of them overlap uh, here with the, with the previous points here. First of all, Jesus himself, too, was chosen. Jesus, too, was chosen. Look in Hebrews chapter 5, and verse 5 and 6. So also, Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also, in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is he saying here? Jesus was chosen. Jesus didn't just get the job. Jesus didn't just get the position because of favoritism. He was chosen by God because he was divine. He was the very son of God. The writer here quotes a, song, um, a phrase from a psalm, Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, um, that tells about Jesus, the son of God, prophesies about him uh, being the very son of God, being divine. He's divine. And, 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 and he brings out the point that Jesus is God's son. Now, to us, that, that we hear that a lot, and it might not mean a whole lot to our ears, but to call somebody the Son of God was, was to say they were on equal par with God. And just in case we, you need to be reminded, you can read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 1, verse 14, where he makes the case that Jesus is God. He is the exact substance of the Father, the exact representation, the very nature and substance of who God the Father is. He is very God, a very God. So he was chosen because he was very God, a very God, the the eternal Son of God. No other high priest could say they were the Son of God. Aaron couldn't say, I'm the Son of God. Zadok, Samuel, and others couldn't say they were the Son of God. But there's another reason why he was specially chosen. Verse 6 says, As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world is that talking about? Well, that's what he's going to explain in chapter 7. So you've got to kind of wait until we get to chapter 7. What in the world is the order of Melchizedek? But what you can understand is that he has been designated the forever high priest. Aaron died, another guy took on after him. Then that guy died, and another guy took on after him. 
And it got all the way up to Jesus' day when there was a high priest named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas dies. By the way, they found inscriptions in Jerusalem with Caiaphas' name on them. Uh, real, real, real people, real happenings here. We're not talking about fairy tales. This is real history here. Um, and, but, but Caiaphas failed and Caiaphas died. Jesus is the forever high priest. He's the forever high priest. That's the point of, of the writer quoting Psalm 110. Which, says, which tells us two things. That Jesus is the Messiah descending from David. And he's the Messiah who is the high priest, the descendant of David. Um, <clears throat> who is the high priest forever. Now, I mentioned already this morning that most of the high priests were of what tribe? Levi. Jesus was the descendant of David. What tribe was David. Judah. He was of the tribe of David. Remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel. He was the tribe of David. Uh, Judah. Of Judah. And so the priests were from Levi, and, and specifically the high priests were from Aaron's household. But Jesus was a priest after a whole other order. The order of Melchizedek. The office of Melchizedek. And we'll get into this in chapter 7. But his point is, even in his choosing as a high priest, he is absolutely qualified, and he is not an illegitimate intruder. He's absolutely qualified, so he's chosen. Second, Jesus is man. He is the God-man. If he was divine, he's also full human. Chapter 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, that's speaking of the days of his humanity, while he walked the earth with us, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard and that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Carolyn referenced Jesus' time in the garden of Gethsemane, the evening before his crucifixion, where he asked that the cup, if possible, could be taken away from him. The author brings out the fact of Jesus' humanity. His incarnation is the big word for it. God in flesh. To show us that Jesus, as the perfect high priest, can sympathize with the people he represents to God. He was not only God, he was fully human. And that's what chapter 4, verse 14 uh, through 16 says. Verse 15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. He shows his humanity in this specific way, the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up what? Prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He expresses his humanity in a crucial, um, a crucial way, through his prayer, through his prayer, we are frail, broken, needy people. God is all sufficient and has a listening ear because of the work of His Son. When we pray, we are declaring our dependence on God. We are declaring that we need God. We are declaring that we are just flesh. We are human. The, the word that is used here of prayers is a word that means um, <clears throat> expressions of need. Jesus, 
had needs, he did if he was human. The word supplications here, and uh, translated supplications here, means urgent requests. Jesus had things that were urgent requests that he couldn't do, that he needed God's help in. Yes, he was human. The word strong crying means a cry of one who is deeply disturbed. Have you ever heard anybody who had a situation come into their life that they were totally unprepared for and they just fell apart weeping? Deeply disturbed. Maybe you remember a time in your life where you came to the end of your rope and you were in a situation, in a crisis where you were deeply disturbed and all you could do was cry out. Wait a minute. Does that mean Jesus was overwhelmed? Mm-hmm. Yep. Jesus was overwhelmed in certain situations in life, particularly what Carolyn referenced here this morning. If you turn with you to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. You don't cry out to God. You don't express need. You don't have urgent requests. You don't have a a strong cries, cries of being deeply disturbed unless there is something heavy on your soul. In Mark 14, verse 33, this idea here, I think, is illustrated in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Where it says, and he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed here, and to be very heavy. That's the idea we're talking about. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Why would he pray? He needed strength. He needed God's strength. He shows his humanity through his praying life. Yes, Jesus even needed to pray in dark times. And then that verse in Hebrews 5 says, and tears, and tears. And the wonderful news is the end of verse 7 where it says, and was heard, and that he feared. That's the idea of, of being reverent, feared. Heard that he was reverent. How was he reverent? Because he submitted to his father's will. He said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup that I must drink tomorrow on the cross, the cup of your wrath, or remove it from me. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. His prayers were heard, even his humanity, because of his submission to his father's will. And if his prayers were heard, does that not mean he is a perfect high priest who could do a good job representing his people, to say the least? Absolutely. How submissive was he, though? Now look what the author says in verse 8. Though he were a son, though he was very God of very God, divine God, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Does that mean that he wasn't just an autopilot making moral choices and the right choices and pleasing God because he he had a divine nature? That's exactly what it means. He was not on autopilot. The very truth 
that he submitted reverently to God's will out of his humanity is the very reason he is a perfectly suited high priest. He learned obedience, not, notice it does not say he learned obedience out of his disobedience. He never sinned. But he learned obedience out of his suffering. Now what does that mean to us? Well, what does that mean? Because that's, that's a difficult thing. Uh, I, I, we have trouble. We see Jesus in his, in his divinity here as God, and we wonder, how could he then learn obedience? We forget the humanity, the, the side of him. Uh, and, and by the way, it wasn't like he had, he had split personalities here. He was all, all uh, uh, the, the very perfect mixture, for lack of a better word, of God and man. Uh, his nature was the God-man. It wasn't like part of him was God and part of it was man. No, he was, he was very God, a very God, and man, a very man. There was no doubt about it. Uh, but the scripture does suggest to us this, that Jesus did not sin, not because he relied on his supernatural power of his divine nature, or because his divine nature just overpowered his human nature, keeping him from sinning, but because Jesus perfectly utilized all the resources given to him in his humanity, but the main one being what verse 7 is talking about, prayer. In other words, Jesus had always and for all eternity obeyed God forever, hadn't he? There was never a time in heaven with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit where Jesus said, no, Father, I'm not going to do that today. No, he'd always obeyed. But it was not an obedience that was forced in the fires of suffering, was it? But when Jesus subjected himself to humanity, he subjected himself to the fallen world and suffering, didn't he? This is an obedience that was in a, a different kind of obedience. It was unlike anything he'd ever experienced before. In the incarnation, when Jesus comes to earth, uh, 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 the, the, he, he, his, uh, his obedience was, was, was often uh, displayed within uh, um, environments of opposition, affliction. And oftentimes when he obeyed, there would be more suffering that would result from him standing firm to his father as well, wouldn't there be? And Jesus knew as he obeyed the Father, as he, as he, as he uh, pursued the Father's will, he was, it was not getting easier and easier, was it? In fact, there was probably greater and greater opposition. He was putting himself in a place of increased suffering. When Jesus starts out, he has big crowds, doesn't he? As he goes on and after the cross, there's just a few, aren't there? We gave the illustration yes, um, last Sunday here about... He was tempted at all points, as we are yet without sin. We say, well, how does, how does he identify with us then? When we give in to sin, we release the pressure, don't we? Every sin and every temptation that Jesus faces is like adding another plate onto the barbell. Heavier and heavier and heavier. Up to the point of the cross, which the Bible says in Philippians was the absolute extent of of his obedience. It didn't get easier. And the point here in this scripture here is not that Jesus uh, um, finally got it. Like he was pretty disobedient and then he finally got it and he became more and more obedient. No, 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 no. It's not that he finally learned he needed to obey rather than disobey. No, that's not true. The point is this. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered means this. Despite the suffering he knew he would receive, 
as he counted the cost and obeyed his father's will. He resisted the temptation to avoid suffering and to turn away from his father's will. Instead, resolutely obeyed his father every step of the way, no matter how hard things were. And it never got easier and easier. In fact, it got more and more difficult. That word learn there is the idea of experience. Experience, experience. And even though he knew his obedience would bring to him only intensified pain, affliction, rejection, suffering, and ultimately an agonizing death from those who opposed him, he obeyed. But you know, it's even more than that. It's even more than that. Jesus, as a boy, learned to obey. Jesus, as a teenager, learned to obey. Jesus, as an adult, learned to obey. But Jesus, as a boy, learned to obey things that were different than Jesus as an adult. Must it not be that Hebrews is showing us that Jesus learned to obey the Father through his whole of his life? With an obedience that was rendered in increasing difficult situations as he grew and he developed? As the son learned to obey the father in earlier times of lighter demands upon him, and we could say lighter suffering, that increased and increased over his years. And as he learned to obey and saw the blessing that resulted from obeying in his younger years, his experience of faith in his father's provision and protection and direction would prepare him for greater and greater acts of obedience. You know, the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. Those early obediences under circumstances that might have been lighter were the training program for him to increase harder and harder obedience. And so his obedience was anything but automatic and easy, was it? It was extremely difficult and hard fought. He had to struggle. He had to fight to believe and obey the Father. His obedience was difficult. It was painful. It was agonizing. It was torturous. And he felt deeply the struggle to obey. But he obeys perfectly. So could Jesus have gone to the cross to die for our sins when he was only 12 years old? Or could he have done so before he begins his ministry at the age of 30? No, I believe that God's preparing him. Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. He grew at it. He faced harder and harder challenges. Each step of obedience along the way was remarkable, but all those experiences were meant to build his faith and strengthen his character. So in the end, Jesus could succeed in fulfilling the will of the Father and choosing to endure the agony of the cross for the payment of your sin and my sin. In fact, verse 9 says this, And being made perfect. Complete is the idea. Made complete. He became the author, the originator of eternal salvation to all them that obeyed Him. Made perfect. 
made perfect. What does that mean? He wasn't perfect before? No, he was righteous and totally morally perfect in everything that he did. But he was completed to be able to die on the cross at the age of 33 for your and my sins as a great Savior. So when we meet the author, we find he was chosen. He was fully man. He was Savior. He's able to be Savior. Savior. He didn't move towards sinless perfection. He was always sinlessly perfect. But rather, he matured. He grew. It sounds a little hard to believe. Faith maturity for the sinless Son of God. But clearly Hebrews here in verse 9 is talking about some manner in which Jesus was made perfect, complete, mature in a way where he would not have been in younger years to go to the extent of the cross. Jesus the Savior. The strength of his character and faith to the point where he'd be able to accept fully the will of the Father to go on the cross. Strengthened, completed, because he learned obedience to the things he suffered. So when the greatest testing came, he embraced his Father's will and gave himself over to die for our sins. When we think about Jesus dying for our sins, rejoice in that. But think through this. Jesus is willing to go through obedience necessary to that point of the cross. What a great high priest. And verse 9 through 11 tells us the point of all this. That Jesus is worthy of our absolute worship. He's worthy of our absolute worship. Look what he says in verse 11. Uh, the writer wants them to understand this. He wants them to grasp. He wants them to get it. We'll look in the passage next week a little bit more. But he says, of whom? Jesus, the high priest. We have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are what? Dole of hearing. What's it tell us? But Jesus wants to be heard and pondered and, and, and grown and, 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 and our thinking and, and understood and, and shared. The high priest in Aaron was a chosen one. Jesus was chosen too, but on greater terms. He was eternal son of God and he was an eternal high priest. The great high priest, the high priest in Israel was a man. He was a sinner, though, and he could sympathize with those who sinned and, and, and understand the past of sin. But he was a sinner. He had to offer a sacrifice for himself. Jesus was a man, and he went through suffering and affliction, but he was perfectly obedient. The high priest was a co-sinner, but Jesus is the perfect Savior. Sinless, righteous Son of God. So what does it mean for us? Well, because he is... Supremely qualified, Jesus is worthy of our absolute worship. He is worthy of hearing and pondering and obeying and sharing. Verse 12 says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. 
You ought to be reproducing and sharing Christ, he tells these believers. Because of who Jesus is, you ought to be hearing him, you ought to be pondering about who he is, and you ought to be sharing to others who he is. But you're not. And the things that they were not doing tells us God's requirements for the truth of who Jesus is and what it should do to change us. Hearing, pondering, obeying, sharing. You might be wondering, well, what difference does this make in my life that Jesus was this way in his humanity as a perfect high priest? I want you to know that you can see in Jesus' victory over temptation that victory really can happen. The resources God gives, His Word, prayer, the power of the Spirit, were what Jesus used, and they are given to us as well. We can look at Jesus with a realization that He lived the kind of life we too are called to live, in harmony with God, in obedience to God. But the truth is, He made use of the very means and resources that are also given to us. Jesus did not obey out of his divine nature. He obeyed out of his human nature using what God had given him to obey. Having a mind saturated with the word of God doesn't just happen because you're on autopilot, does it? Having a life of fervent and regular prayer like verse 7, as Jesus had, doesn't magically appear in your life, does it? Learning to trust the power of the Holy Spirit and say no to sin and yes to God, as Jesus did, isn't automatic, isn't it? And when we learn that the Christian life is lived by grace, the grace of God at work within us that activates us, and we can say, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, but if we don't use what Jesus did and we don't access Jesus as our great high priest, and we look to Jesus with hope, seeing in Him a human, true human who has faced and won the battle with temptation, we must also see Jesus as a man who gave Himself in striving and fighting, in diligence, devotion to the Word of God, to prayer, to reliance on the Spirit. And our longing to share in his victory over temptation, we need to also share in his devotion to all that is needed to strengthen our minds and our hearts and our souls. And we can rejoice that though Christ was tempted in every way as we are, he never sinned. His obedience was not automatic. He fought fervently every time to the full extent necessary to defeat each temptation brought to him. How remarkable he is. He's a great high priest, but it also shows us something. There are no little things in your life. There are no little obediences. Every opportunity given us by God is to be stewarded, to be used for his good. Either to obey or disobey, every opportunity is an opportunity for character formation and strengthening of faith that can prepare us 
for the greater challenges of faith God has in mind for the future. Why do people fall away? Why do people drift away? Because they are not putting into practice the things that God has given, all the powers He has given, and His great exceeding promises uh, that He's given for life and godliness. And when it comes, they didn't do the little obediences. And the storm comes, and they fall flat. But we can learn from Jesus, the perfect Son of God. If there was anyone we could say would not need to practice, it would be Jesus. He could just rely on His, on his, on his divinity, right? No. Little obediences mattered to Jesus Christ, didn't they? And it prepared him for the greatest test of his faith to accept the Father's will in going to the cross. And folks, if we're going to be serious about following Christ, we need to understand that God has given us training grounds in this life. This life is not your final destination, is it? But it is your final preparation. It is your final preparation. And Jesus' training ground of tested faith is the same kind of training that the Father designs for us. When you understand that, it transforms how you see the little things, doesn't it? Uh, I'm not going to pay attention to that. Mm. You're making deposits. What opportunities, greater opportunities of Work or faith in Christ is awaiting us in the future if we're obedient in the smaller ways. You know, we learn from Jesus, our high priest, is every obedience matters. That obeying in the smaller things prepares us for the larger. We understand the role that faith testing plays in preparing for what God may have designed us for in the future. That because of Jesus, our, our eternal representative and the author of our salvation, who enables us to be more and more like Him, that's the purpose of the Gospel, be more and more like the one who died for us, the high priest who is our intercessor and also our sacrifice, we can grow more and more like Jesus to obey and love as our motivation. Suffering, affliction, trials, testings, those are gifts that God has granted to us for our growth. They are paving stones along the pathway that leads at the end destination of finding fullness of joy in Christ. We instinctively want to push away hard things, don't we? We want to push away suffering. We want to push away the testings. We want to keep it at arm's length. But that's a mistake. It's a mistake. Because those are opportunities to grow. And Jesus was prepared to face the greatest challenge of his life, the greatest challenge anyone could face, period, because his father had graciously taken him through class A, class B, class C, class D, and the grounds of suffering by which he learned obedience step by step by step. And you will not succeed. You will fall. You will crash and burn if you think you live the Christian life by autopilot. It's full and active participation with the Holy Spirit in our lives. These glimpses of Jesus that we even see in this chapter, verse 7, show us Jesus was not living a spiritual life on autopilot. 
when we look again at Jesus, what we see is a man who labored to obey, who agonized in the testings the Father designed for him, who fought through the trials of life to maintain his obedience before his Father. And we should be able to say with Paul, I labored, I worked, I was striving, but not I but that the grace of God was with me. Because it's only by God's sustaining and empowering grace we can obey. But that enablement does not replace our responsibility to fight and to work. Instead, what God has provided in Christ as our high priest should activate our new nature. Should put into motion the fight of faith necessary to obey. And may we count every obedience significant, small as it might be, and see each as a stepping stone. And embrace suffering as one of the means that God uses to bring about the growth in faith and strengthen of character that he saved us for. Folks, in Hebrews chapter 5 through chapter 7, we're going to see that Jesus is the anchor for our soul. Do you understand why Jesus is the anchor for our soul? Because Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Jesus is the anchor for our soul as the great high priest. There's nothing better out there. This is it. And nothing can compare to Jesus. He's the anchor for our soul. Let's pray.